Scripture reading today comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 16 through 21. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, <coughs> that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of re reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Good morning. Good to be with you all today. As you know, if you've been here for the past couple weeks, um, we announced a new theme for 2023, just a theme of emphasis, of teaching, of concentration, and a lot of our um, efforts to, to, uh, to study the Bible together, to understand what God uh, would have us be and who He would have us be. And we're focusing in on this phrase from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that we are to be ministers of reconciliation. And as this text suggests, if you read through it, we're going to do that many times over the next uh, few months, Lord willing. The gospel, the very gospel of Jesus can be boiled down to God's plan to bring reconciliation into the world. A lot of ways to characterize the gospel, what it is, it's good news. Um, you know, it involves faith in God. It is what God did on the cross. There's so many biblical ways to characterize it. Um, given 2 Corinthians 5, the paragraph that was just read by Riley, I think we could say basically that the gospel is that God is reconciling uh, everything in the world to Him, and He calls us to be, uh, as adherents to that gospel, ministers, servants to that end of recon worldwide reconciliation. The world is scarred. Uh, God made it beautiful, but it's scarred by alienation, by disintegration, by uh, destruction. And, and those are the things that sin always sows. It spreads those things like a cancer through the world. And so our world is like, like Ecclesiastes presents it in, in many ways. It's broken. It's uh, futile. There's, you know, your, your efforts don't pay off. And then there are moments when we, uh, we, we think more like some of the Proverbs would say, that if you follow God's wisdom, good things are going to happen. The world's both. It's, it's, a, a, it's been called a, a marred masterpiece. God made it beautiful. Sin has warped it. And God is trying to reconcile all things back to Him. So over the course of the next year, we plan to expound upon many of the aspects and applications of this very theologically rich concept of reconciliation. But before we dive into any of these particulars, these specific aspects more deeply, we want to overview the basics uh, this morning and over the next uh, couple of weeks. The, the rudiments, if you will, of this ministry of reconciliation. What are its ABCs? Right? What are the fundamentals that go into this ministry of reconciliation, as Paul calls it in 2 Corinthians 5.18? Um, so over the next few weeks, we want to talk about, as, as a way of orientating ourselves to uh, this theme, we're going to examine some of the basics or the rudiments of the ministry of reconciliation. Today we want to talk about what it is that makes it go. All right? 
how do you have a ministry of reconciliation? What, what is the engine behind that? What propels it along? What, if you will, makes it go? And, and then over subsequent uh, few weeks, we're going to overview the places into which it's expected to go. All right? So what makes it go and where should it go? What are the theaters of, of its activity um, that it should be operational in? Because I think a lot of times... We've inherited a tradition, many Christians in the West, in the modern West, of limiting what God's trying to do. The gospel has a much narrower scope than it really does in the Bible. And if we're going to be ministers of reconciliation, our reconciliation needs to be as big as, as God's reconciliation. It needs to be as big as the alienation and disintegration and disruption and destruction that sin caused. And I'll I think we'll find, if we look around the world with open eyes, not to mention looking into Scripture first, that um, it's in every nook and cranny of the universe. And so reconciliation has got to go far and wide. So we'll talk about that. But first we want to talk about what does it take for an effective ministry of reconciliation to take off? What propels it along? The first thing is we've got to accept that God is the one alone who empowers it. God is the one driving this ministry of reconciliation. It is His cause. It, it, it is His idea um, and he is the one doing it. And so this is one of two basic things we're going to look at this morning that are kind of like prerequisites to an effective ministry of reconciliation. It won't get off the ground. It won't take off. It won't move along into the places it's supposed to go if we don't have these two things in place. The first of which is our accepting that God alone empowers it. This whole work of reconciling the world originates with God. Look at 2 Corinthians 5, 18. All this, all of it, is from whom? God. He, didn't, he doesn't say some great social reformer came up with this. So get behind him or her. No, he says all this is actually from God. Who initiated reconciliation. He says who reconciled us to himself through Christ and then gave us. This thing that he's doing. He passes the task along. But it originates with God. And so the ministry of reconciliation can't just be reduced to yet another form of human-centered activism. All right? That's an important point, I think. It, it really kind of goes out of its way to remind us who this is from, who it's emanating from, who is the source, the engine, the power behind it. Because lots of movements and causes throughout history have prioritized and pursued various forms of reconciliation, right? Mediation between hostile ethnic groups. There's been that throughout the world. Uh, people who try to bring, bring peace between warring nations or the reunion of estranged family members. Um, maybe arbitration between, you know, social classes in, in workplaces, things like that. So there's been all sorts of movements to bring reconciliation to many aspects of, of life. And, and I think such human efforts are, are admirable. Um, and I don't know where this comes from, but let me just say as a sidebar, we should avoid taking pot shots against those who are working toward any end that the Bible itself says is good. I never have gotten that, like, Oh, those people, those radicals, those progressives, those, well, they're, are, they're trying to stop racism. You have a problem with that? Remember when Jesus said, he who is not against us is for us? If it's good, it's God's. Period. If it is good, biblically, God owns it. Even if the people doing it never heard of God. 
or disavow him. I, I think that's a, some form of a reverse pride or jealousy, actually, or fear when we do that. So I, I want to dis, distance us from that, distance myself at least, I can't speak for you, from this, this idea that we're supposed to take pot shots against anybody doing something good that isn't me, that isn't us. If it's on God's side, it's God's. Now, we need to work on getting people to understand it's from God. That's the point I'm making here. But justice and unity and respecting the dignity of every human being made in his image, that is from the truth of God. That's not from the world, ultimately. However, and this is my main point here, the reconciling work that Paul is referring to here in 2 Corinthians 5 is ultimately a divine project. It is ultimately God's. It is not a project rooted in human wisdom or effort. And if we fail to recognize this fundamental point, it's going to lead to harmful consequences. First of all, we're going to become frustrated over time and when it's not working like it should. Uh, and we may very well abandon the cause when these merely human-based efforts don't bear any lasting fruit. And a more fundamental problem, a result of this, is that we can end up in a kind of idolatry. I'm convinced that a whole lot of activism, even in the name of Jesus often, the real thing people are loyal to and getting their identity from and their, their charge from, what they're really devoted to, is the cause. More than the capital C cause, God. They really, it's the feeling of we're getting something done here. Activism isn't your God. That's not what you're loyal to. The cause isn't your identity. God is where it all comes from. And so we need to make sure that we um, are reminded of that uh, regularly, as Paul does here. All this is from God. The ministry of reconciliation is so inextricably connected to God himself and God's power that it is actually rooted in something called, in verse 17, the new creation. The new cre Think about those words. The new create. He doesn't just say the new start. You know? Um, this is a, a, a redo. It's creation. This is, a, this is biblical language here. The new creation, he says, is what the ministry of reconciliation is rooted in. And as we'll see throughout the year, there can be no ministry of reconciliation without new creation. Notice this. The latter, ministry of reconciliation, flows out of the former, the new creation. This is not an accident that verse 17 talks about new creation, and then right in verse 18, he seamlessly moves into the ministry of reconciliation. The one reflects the other. It's like the heads and the tail side of a coin. You don't really have new creation being enacted if, if we don't see some efforts to, to call, bring about reconciliation. Because the old creation is struck through by virtue of sin and the fall with alienation. People are at odds. Everything is sort of spinning out of the control, centrifugally, right? From the hub, who is Jesus? That's what happened with sin. That's what sin sows. It sows it in your relationship with your friends and your family, uh, between ethnic groups and races and nations and everything. Environmentally, we're going to talk about all that in the new year. So it's, it's no wonder that you have to have new creation, a whole new order, a whole new cosmos, a whole new universe, a whole new world to get a ministry of reconciliation. And so God is bringing the one so that it might flow into the other. The term new creation, what does that remind you of when you read new creation? What does that invoke or hark back to? The old creation. 
To say something's new, what? Then there must be another one. Yeah, it's the original one. It's the one in Genesis 1. Uh, the original creation. And so it stresses, by virtue of this, the role of the only being in the universe who is a creator. If this is a new creation, then like the original creation, nobody can pull it off except the creator. No other creature can ultimately, fundamentally uh, create. We just take creation and reorder it, right? Mix things up in a different way or reorder. That's what art is, that's what science is, that's what industry is, that's what tech is. We're not really creating in the sense that God does. So if this is new creation, it's got to come from the only being in the world who creates, and that is God himself. How much human agency was brought to the project of the original creation? Remember what God says to Job? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? You have no idea what you're talking about. He lets him talk, as God does. God's secure in himself. He can hear. You know, that's part of having a relationship with him. You actually talk and say real things you're concerned about. You don't just act all holy and pious. God sees through that in a heartbeat. So he lets Job go on. But then he also sets him straight and says, you really don't have the credentials to have this conversation. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the world? So if we're going to be ministers of, of reconciliation, we've got to see that this will come from the creative power of God who is in fact bringing a whole new creation into the world. New creation and the reconciliation that flows from it, whatever they entail, they are empowered by God the creator. All right? But I do want to look for a minute, just by way of survey, and we're going to, you know, explicate all these points in, in greater de uh, depth, Lord willing, over you know, subsequent sermons and weeks and months. But let's first of all just ask by way of a kind of sketch level, what do these things entail? What does the new creation and the reconciliation that uh, is concomitant with it, what, what do those things actually entail? I think it's important to understand that Paul is referring to something larger here than just individual sinners becoming new creatures. All right? Individual sinners do become new creatures, new creations in their own right, in Jesus Christ when they're, when they're converted, when they're saved. And individual redemption is indeed crucial. We're going to talk a lot about that over the, the coming year. But the reason I have to say this is because that's where a lot of modern Western Christians stop. The Bible just becomes a story about how you individually get reconciled to God. That's it. Everything else is fluff. We learn to read through it or filter it out with the lenses we've been given culturally, historically. And it all becomes nothing more than that. Um, but the sense here of new creation is as broad and multifaceted, let me suggest to you anyway, as the universal alienation and disintegration that was ushered in by the fall. The reason I have the NIV, and I've asked us to read from the NIV and the NRSV when we do the memory verse on this, is for this very reason. The NIV says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. All right? I want you to focus in on how he's saying here, the new creation, it's very broad, very general. If you're in Christ... You've entered a new reality, sort of. There, there, something else has dawned on you, and it's, it's, newness is everywhere. All right? If you look at the New Revised Standard Version, it says something different. 
If anyone is in Christ, the first part's all essentially the same, the white part. But in yellow, I'm going to show you some other versions here. If anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. It's not just you are a new creature. There's this broad new creation that non-Christians, people who aren't in Christ, they don't know that. They just know you're going along with the old broken creation with all their pipe dreams and hopes and fantasies that they hope somehow this time will work out different than all the other 18 billion times people try to do things without God. They don't know, but if you're in Christ, there's a new creation. Now, let me give you the reason I'm making this point. If you look at a version like the New American Standard Version, at least the 1970s, there's been 14 of these, but um, the 1977 version, kind of, I grew up on this idea, and the King James says something different. Um, if, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. That's a different idea, isn't it? It's more narrow. It kind of sounds like the whole thing's just talking about your conversion. Now, that is completely true and included in this idea. It, it, but I want you to notice something here. On that second, uh, on the New American Standard little uh, text bullet, notice how he is, is italicized. You know what that means in the New American Standard version and in a lot of versions? It's not in there. That's what it means. <laughs> and it's not, it's not like somebody's playing fast and loose with the Bible. A lot of languages don't work. They're not like math. You have to like, there's idioms and things like that. So you have to complete the idea. And they're trying to help us here. Go, well, what it's really saying is, if you're in Christ, you're a new creature. The problem is in the Greek, there is no verb or pronoun at all. So this isn't Greek, this is English, obviously. But this is, if you just translated the Greek literally, here's what it says. If anyone is in Christ, new creation. It doesn't say you are, he is, or it doesn't even have is. It just has, almost like it's saying, if anyone is in Christ, colon, new creation. That you, you've entered a new worldview, a new reality. So it's much broader than just this idea of, um, uh, and, and you know, you can make the argument that in this particular text, he's talking more about the conversion of individuals, I suppose. That's what some of the translators suggest, others don't. But if you're going to plug in the Apostle Paul's use of new creation to the rest of the Pauline corpus, I guarantee you you're going to start thinking much more broadly and biblically. This is a guy who was being trained as a Jewish rabbi and who quotes Isaiah all the time. He's not just thinking about only you. He's thinking about the restoration of Israel, the new Jerusalem, the new heavens, new earth, and all this stuff that the Hebrew prophets that Paul studied when he was in seminary under Gamaliel, uh, if you will, uh, would have been talking about. All right, I feel like we have to make these kind of disclaimers because that's not the default we have. We read this Bible through a different lens, and it's very hyper-individualized because that's what we do in modern America and the modern West. We individualize everything. Now, Paul no doubt has in mind what Isaiah prophesied regarding a future new heavens and new earth. We have to put Paul's words into the whole scriptural framework with its prophetic promise of the restoration not only of Israel, which he says umpteen times in the prophets. Uh, or he, his prophets, all Hebrew prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, all of them talk about this just about, virtually. But then they also start weirdly talking about the whole, new, the whole heavens and earth changing, where lions are lying down with lambs and people aren't dying and stuff like that. And you're like, oh, well, this is different than just Jerusalem literally physically being restored. Something else is going on here. The whole world sounds like it's cosmically going to be changed when God restores all things. It's all over the prophets. 
And our ability sometimes to read the Old Testament without seeing that theme, those themes is, is honestly astounding. When you go back and start doing the math, and what, this is all over the place. It's just a lesson that we are able to put on lenses that filter out giant swaths of the Bible. All humans are. Not just people in denominations. Our, our circles, too. We all can do that. It's called being human. Uh, and we need to be alert, alert to that. All right. Um, look at this. Here's what Isaiah says. Isaiah 65, 17. Really, chapter 60 through 66 are all about the new heavens, new earth. And all this just multi-layered restoration that's coming at the end of time. The culmination of everything. Behold, God says, I create new heavens and new earth. That's new creation. Heavens and earth is the creation. That's how Genesis 1, you know, that's what God, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That's, that's, what, that's creation language. Well, it's going to happen new, according to Isaiah. Peter says something similar, refers back to this, no doubt, in 2 Peter 3.13, when he says, but according to his promise, God's promise in the prophets, we are waiting, Christians are waiting, at least Peter thinks so. The Apostle Peter, the Holy Spirit-inspired Apostle Peter thinks that we are all waiting for a new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. And then to top it all off, you get John's uh, vision of the end at the end of Revelation, chapter 21 and 22, and a little bit before that, of, of this culmination of all that the prophets said about what is going to come to earth. And he says this in Revelation 21.1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away. We'll pick that back up in a minute. But my point is this, in biblical parlance, right? If we're going to use biblical idioms and biblical language and biblical concepts, which we say we're the people who are trying to do that, well then new creation refers to a whole new cosmos, a whole new universe shorn of the curse of sin. And it's a universe in which reconciliation pervades everyone who's in it, anyway, and everything. There's nothing not reconciled. That's why in Ephesians 1.20, uh, 1.10, and Colossians 1.20, two times Paul says God in Christ is reconciling everything in the heavens and the earth to Him. Every single molecule. It's the most inclusive language you could possibly come up with with human language, with human grammar. So it's, it's spiritual. It's got a spiritual dimension. There's a spiritual reconciliation between God and humans since, as we read in Revelation 21, um, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, referring to the church. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God, the tabernacle of God, is with man, with humanity. He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. So that's a spiritual reconciliation, if you want to call it that. Vertical between sinners and God. Sinners who've been converted from their sinfulness to Him through Jesus. Alright? You know, when we talk about salvation, we usually mean individual in our circles. That, that's what this is talking about. People are now redeemed with God. He's in their midst. He's dwelling with them forever. That's happening in the new creation. So that's a reconciliation of a spiritual nature. There's social reconciliation between peoples and people groups. Nations are pictured as being here in the new heavens, new earth, bringing their glory into the new Jerusalem, and all of them being healed from their strives and their, their strifes and their war and their conflict by the leaves of the tree of life. Revelation 22.2 says, also on either side of the river, they've got all these allusions back to the Garden of Eden, except the curse is no longer, it says. 
the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. And you've already read uh, a, a chapter or so earlier that the nations, and then again in 22 on down, that the nations are all bringing all their, their glories to God and laying them at the feet of the, the throne, at the Lamb, um, to, to worship Him. So they're all there, but they're not warring and fighting anymore. Like Isaiah says in chapter 2, they've turned their implements of war into implements of blessing. Swords have been beaten into plowshares. They will no longer learn war anymore. That's the picture here, reconciliation. Not just you and God. Everybody. Everybody. It's not just spiritual, if we want to put it on, that word on there. Everything's spiritual if it's of God. So I don't really love that dichotomy. We'll talk about that in a minute. But biblically, it just kind of doesn't add up. But it's a, if you want a spiritual reconciliation and then a social reconciliation between humans. And then there's a cosmic reconciliation too. Um, in uh, Revelation chapter uh, uh, 21 and, uh, and also down in 22 again, I want you to notice here that the whole world is now being is changed. It's not illumined by a sun anymore. It, the presence of God himself is like the sun. That's okay. Something has changed. If you walk out tomorrow and there's no sun anywhere, it's a sunny day, like blue sky, bright, you know, get your sunglasses on, but you can't find the sun. I, I promise you there's going to be some articles on your phone about that. There's going to be some people at some observatories saying, what's going on? Nick will be nerding it up on it because he's an astronomy guy. And Corey, you know, our astronomers here will, will have illustrations or something in future PowerPoints. That would be an event, right? That's a cosmic change. But look what it says. I saw no temple in the city. The temple is the place where God always dwelt among His people. You don't need it anymore. Why? Because the temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. The city has no need of a sun or a moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light. God is everywhere among everyone. If you're in the new heavens, new earth, God's present with you. That's why you don't need a temple. The whole place is His temple, finally. His dwelling place will be with humans. He's already said that back in Revelation 21, 1, 2. Night will be no more, there will be no need for a lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. So we've got spiritual reconciliation, social reconciliation, cosmic or universal reconciliation, and finally, even a kind of psychological or internal reconciliation. Because the fact is, we're all divided. Since the fall, we half the time don't know who we are. It's a continual battle every day, isn't it? Where we're going to get our identity from, what we're really loyal to, what we're honestly deep down looking for, and start, even when we're doing good spiritual things, half the time there's, a, there's an angle. Half of our acts of love have self-absorption and self-interest involved. If you're like me, if we're honest. So what's the problem? Well, we don't really believe who God says we are is who we are. There's a problem. There's a continual battle. And guess what? Every inhabitant of the new creation finally knows in their bones who they really are. Revelation 22, 4 says, the serv His servants will worship Him, they will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. You will be so, so much the possession of God, so much the beloved child of God, His name is stamped on your skin. You won't have any doubts anymore about who you are. So the reconciliation is shot through everything. It's not just, oh, I got saved one day on this date and I just keep doing my regular life like I always did. God doesn't touch most things because that's not spiritual, that's physical. Everything is God's. At least it's gonna be. That's what the new creation's about. 
And that's why it has to lead on into reconciliation, because sin brings alienation. It's reversing all that. The curse is no longer. All right, shorter point, I promise. Second point. Y'all get so excited when I say there's two points. It doesn't have anything to do with my length. I'm sorry. I could have a half-point sermon. It could be 20 hours long. I mean, if it's, that's a different thing how I divide it. But anyway, I shouldn't have exploded that myth because I, I, get, I get a little benefit from that, a little hope when y'all go, oh, two points, cool. All right, so the, this kind of recon- reconciliation can only come from God. He grounds it in the redemption and remaking of all creation. But while He empowers it, If there's going to be a ministry of reconciliation, we're the ministers, then a second thing has to be accepted, and that is His invitation to us to be participants in it. We didn't make it up. We're not the one driving it along and propelling it, but we have to choose whether and to what extent we're going to participate in it. So we've got to accept both of these things if the ministry of reconciliation is going to go, if it's going to happen, if it's going to move along the track. We've got to accept, secondly, his invitation to participate in it. Now, amazingly, God calls us to work with him in what is really a a, a wonderful work of of reconciliation, new creation. Look what it says here in 2 Corinthians 5.18 again. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us this ministry of reconciliation. He did it. It's all from him, but he gives it to us, to you and me. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. And if that's astounding, and it is to me, that a holy God, an almighty, infinite being whose address is eternity, you know, would condescend to care about us. I mean, it's like like Greg Spears said in in the Family Bible Education, the idea that he becomes a baby, the incarnation captures this whole ball of wax. He comes near, he cares about us, as little and finite and, you know, historically and spatially located at a dot in time and space as we are, he, he transcends all that, and yet he, he cares. It, it's really not that shocking biblically, because, because uh, God has always been keen to, to call his human image bearers into joint participation with what he's doing. You can go back to the creation itself, as I often say, and we will keep, continue to say this, because early things in the Bible frame the whole thing, as do things at the very end. You know, they're like, Covers of a book. They're the framework for our reading of it. When, when God makes humanity, it says He makes us in His image, male and female, both His equal image uh, bearers, male and female, He created them. And look at verse 28. First thing said about the purpose for making humans in all the Bible. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it have dominion over. These are stewardship words. They're words used elsewhere in Genesis of God. So God is the Lord of creation, but guess what? He takes humans who are the crown of His creation, the ones that that alone bear His image, and He says to them, I'm going to deputize you. You're going to be my co-ruler, my co-dominion holder, my co-regent, however you want to put it. I'm going to bring my children along to help me steward my creation and you're going to have dominion over the fish of the sea the birds of heaven over every other living thing that moves on the earth so god calls us into this from the beginning and you can look at the gospel of christ from the beginning of the gospel to the end of the gospel jesus christ not only calls us out of the world to himself 
but he sends us back into the world on behalf of himself. So if Jesus says, come, come unto me, he also says, go, go into all the world. It's not just, I'm going to get you right. You're going to be saved, and then you can do whatever you want. No. Just like he called Israel out of slavery and brought them to Mount Sinai and gave them a covenant and a relationship and a law and some marching orders, you're going to be a kingdom of priests. So he says to you and me, so he says to the church, I'm now going to send you out. I'm going to be with you, but you're going with me. Out. Okay? It's never not been that way biblically. We're not the king, but we are ministers of the king. And so to be a minister of reconciliation, you have to have, let me suggest two things, and the lesson will be yours. And this is in terms of our accepting the invitation to participate in it. If I'm going to be a minister of reconciliation, the first thing I have to have is I have to have a mindset of new creation. New creation leads on into the ministry of reconciliation. I can't very well be a minister, a servant of reconciliation if I don't even buy into new creation or know what it is or care. That's what Paul says is the causation. That's the other side of the coin, whatever metaphor you want to use. So to what extent are we allowing the scriptures to inform our thinking are we being trained by scriptural images, not some of the half-truths that we often inherit from our culture? And I'm speaking about our religious culture. We're not above that. Why would we be? We're human beings. We're sinners. Right? We're weak and finite and all the other things. But we need to make sure that our, what's in our head, what's, what, our mindset, our mentality, is, uh, is being informed by what the scriptures say and not some of these things that are sort of half-biblical truths that we pick up by osmosis. Let me give you one example that I think very much impacts this question of, of the extent to which we buy into new creation and accept that as our, our worldview, our framework. It's called dualism often in theological uh, parlance. So dualism meaning the flesh is one thing, material matter is one thing, spiritual stuff is something else, and never the twain shall meet kind of dualism. The Gnostics uh, perfected this back in ancient times. But it went away largely in the, in the history of the church through ancient times and the medieval church and so on. It was often very much together. You know, God, spirit, physical things were spiritual and vice versa. The Enlightenment, though, kind of redualized everything. And as N.T. Wright often says, God and religion get kicked upstairs. They're for Sunday. Relegated to spiritual things. In the real workaday world of money, right, jobs, matter, tanks, cars, tech, and protein powder, <laughs> you know, all that. That's, that's not, God doesn't care about all that. God's spiritual. Problem is, God made the world. And the whole book starts off with, it was good. It was good. Day three, good. Day four, good. Day five, good. Day six, very good. That's actually a pagan idea, to dualize it like that, if you really want to give it its, its true roots. But we often think that way. We define spiritual in opposition to bodily or physical or material. In the Bible, you do see, sometimes in the language of Paul, these dichotomies between the flesh and the spirit, but he's not really saying your flesh is inherently bad. Read the context. He's talking about the worldly use of matter. 
the sinful use of matter. In fact, Paul says in 2 Timothy 5, there's going to be these, uh, I don't remember what chapter, 2 Timothy somewhere, somewhere in there it says, Gary, <laughs> that when there's this apostasy that's going to come that says it's not okay to eat certain foods and it's not okay to be in a romantic or a, a marital relationship with somebody because that's too physical. He says that's a lie. Everything created is good, I'm now quoting Paul, so long as it is accepted with thanksgiving uh, and something else. You know, it, it, it's made holy by God because that's how he invented it. It's not inherently bad. And we don't act like we think that when we're eating. We don't go, oh, I know, I feel really guilty. <laughs> but this, this broccoli is really good. I uh, hope God's not watching. Nobody's doing that. We're very inconsistent anyway. Right? We just kind of narrowed it down. God cares about sexual sins, but he doesn't really care about social injustice in some circles. Or in some other circles, he only cares about social justice. He doesn't care about sexual sins. He cares about everything having to do with this world, including you and me and our bodies and everything. There's nothing that God made, part of the creation, that the Creator doesn't incredibly deeply care about. That's why he's trying to reconcile it all. So we've got to get that idea out of our head. If, if I were to say, what does it look like in the resurrection, in the new heavens, new earth, what would be your biggest indicator if you're trying to find a biblical clue as to what, let's say, our bodies would be like in the new heavens, new earth? Where would you look? Biggest clue? Jesus, the resurrected Jesus. Somebody said it back here. Here's what we read about in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says, but in fact... Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So what he's saying essentially is, in the same way that Jesus, they, the disciples saw him resurrected from the dead, walking around, that's, that's an indicator of what we're going to be like. He's the first fruits of a bigger harvest. Everybody who falls asleep or dies, if they're in Christ, they're going to re be resurrected with the kind of body he had. Remember what he says in Luke 24? He appears, and it says the disciples were greatly afraid, and they thought they had seen a spirit. Can't, it, it can't be real physical because he, it's got to be a spirit. And what does Jesus say? Why do you doubt? Touch me. Touch me and see, does a spirit have flesh and bones? This, this is the resurrected Jesus talking. The, the one who, whose body is ready for the new heavens, new earth, for eternity. And he says, does a spirit, does a ghost, the old King James says, says have flesh and blood as you see that I do? So something about... As Paul calls it, a spiritual body. We're not going to read the whole thing here. He doesn't say you don't have a body anymore, you're just a spirit. He says you get this third thing. It's called a spiritual body that apparently has something like flesh and bones. At least Jesus' did. He's the first fruit of us. Now, Jesus could also walk through walls. So, again, it's a third thing. <laughs> but that doesn't mean he's a, some kind of disembodied spirit and that eternity is nothing but just spirits. And God just abandons this whole place. and just what, what was it? Just a giant stage to test us? Is that what earth is? What a weird thing for a loving God to do. No, the, the Bible says it went south because of sin. Because we abdicated our role. And he did not give up on one ounce of it. He's reconciling every bit of it. Every molecule, every person, every race, every ethnicity... Every tree, everything, the Bible says over and over, as we'll see in this year. All right, I'll quit, quit, quit harping on that because we'll there'll be plenty of harping. But if we, if we fall into this dichotomized, you know, spirit versus matter uh, kind of thing, we're going to start having this escapist theology where nothing that happened here really matters. Who cares about all that? Well, God says we're supposed to, but that's a common evangelical eschatology view of the end times. It doesn't matter anyway. 
Um, we're going to be thinking, you know, uh, much of what goes on in the world doesn't matter. You know, the fact that, the, the, that one of the most racially segregated places in, in the America was the church in the 1950s and 40s and 30s and 20s. Actually, from Civil War to the Civil Rights Act, 100 years, Jim Crow. Churches everywhere opposed any movement toward any kind of social justice, even though the Bible says in, in eternity it's going to be every tribe, tongue, people, nation. Go into all the world, every nation. You see, you can do that if it's just about you getting saved. Your story can keep going on with all the racism, all the lust, all the pride, all that's intact because you got saved. God didn't care about, he only cares about spiritual church, right? No, we're the church, we're out there. And we can't fall prey to that kind of thinking. So you got to have a new, a new creation mentality if you're going to be a new creation minister. That's where it comes from. Or you will, you'll, you'll abandon that in a heartbeat. You won't even understand it. Secondly, you have to have a new creation identity. And we're going to have whole lessons on this. But I want you to notice something that Paul says right above um, what we read, what we've been focusing on this morning. So before he says, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. He says this. So, from now on, 2 Corinthians 5.16, we, that is Christians, followers of Jesus, regard no one from a worldly point of view. The whole way we look at people, the metric we use to judge people, it's not our achievements anymore. It's not our accomplishments. It's not our academic pedigree or the amount of money we make or the toys we've bought or the clothes we wear or who we're networked with or how well our Facebook and social media presence is curated to fake out the rest of the world. Right? None of that is where your identity comes from. There might be good in a lot of those things, but we don't regard people from a worldly point of view anymore. He says, we once regarded Christ from a worldly point of view. We thought he was an imposter. We thought he was a charlatan. Charlatan. We don't do that any longer. Why? Because if you're in Christ, new creation has come. The world, the rules just changed. The world changed. It'll be consummated later, but it's already been launched at the resurrection. And if you become a person who died to self, in the waters of baptism and was raised to walk in newness of life as Paul puts in Romans 6 the world has changed for you and what matters and where we get our identity it's completely revolutionized so we need a mindset of new creation and we need an identity rooted in new creation we need to be grounded no pun intended <laughs> rooted those are great puns accidental puns. the coolest things I say are accidents rooted grounded that's like earthy language that's creation language in case you didn't catch that um, but it's got to come from the new creation. Otherwise, we will not be ministers of reconciliation no matter what God's trying to do. He'll do it with somebody else. But the architect of new creation, the one who has launched reconciliation, calls us to participate with him. And we need those two elements, God's empowerment and our participation. These are what make the ministry of reconciliation go. These are the dynamics behind the ministry of reconciliation. Now, what we're going to look at next week and subsequent weeks is the dimensions. We talked about the dynamics this morning. What activates it? Now we're going to talk about the dimensions or the aspects of it, if you will. All right, thank you for your attention. Gone long, even with two points.
Appreciate it very much. And I'm looking forward to, I'm very excited, as you can probably tell, about this topic, because I really think it's seminal and very much who we're supposed to be as God's people. So let's all help each other, consult His Word regularly together over this next year, and try to live out these principles of new creation and being ministers of reconciliation. Amen? Amen. Let's all stand and sing. Nick.